You can't be neutral on the moving train. I told y'all before. You can't believe everything that your teacher tell you. Who is your teacher? Your teacher just learned what they was taught. How do you know what they was taught was correct? Welcome to You Can't Be Neutral, a political podcast inspired by Howard Zinn and progressive and radical activism, taking a look at society, media, and politics. You can follow You Can't Be Neutral on Twitter at YCBNeutral. Check out all the back episodes at YouCan'tBeNeutral.com. Find a link there to make a recommendation or send me a message. And you'll find some links there to make a donation. You can make a one-time or recurring donation to keep this and all my podcasts free and independent. Build Back Better. The, The name slapped onto the latest budget reconciliation bill being uh, shepherded through the Senate by the chairman of the Budget Committee, Bernie Sanders, um, which that reconciliation bill started out somewhere around the $6 trillion range that was negotiated down to somewhere around $3.5 trillion and then further cut and hacked and watered down by Biden and conservatives to the current $1.5 trillion package, which leaves out a lot of what was hoped to be in that budget reconciliation bill and reduces a lot of what is still remaining in that budget reconciliation bill. It has turned from Build Back Better, the name that was uh, slapped on it after things got rolling, to Bilk Back Better. And in its current form, it is still at high risk of not passing altogether. Now that the uh, progressives in the House have given up their leverage by allowing the quote-unquote bipartisan infrastructure bill to pass in the House without the corresponding Build Back Better bill also passing or also being voted on at the same time. First up, we have a piece published at dailyposter.com. This is written by David Sirota, Julia Rock, and Andrew Perez. Dailyposter.com does a fantastic job at following the money and digging up the stories that uh, most of the media overlook or ignore. Quote, there are three kinds of lies. Lies, damned lies, and statistics. Mark Twain. When Democratic leaders conditioned the passage of their Build Back Better social spending bill on numbers from the Congressional Budget Office, CBO, they put their party's entire agenda in the hands of economists who had already infamously denied the financial impact of climate change. Now the same Republican-led office is effectively denying the existence of its own previous estimates of savings from an enforcement initiative that would compel rich people to fork over their unpaid taxes. The CBO's decision to pretend its own analyses don't exist could be used by corporate Democrats as a rationale for dooming their party's already pared-back health care, climate, and anti-poverty legislation. At the same time, corporate Democrats are deploying a budgetary trick that will allow the CBO to decide that a massive tax cut for the wealthy will not cost anything at all. Taken together, the machinations illustrate how Republicans and corporate Democrats have figured out how to game the CBO's analyses and use them as a weapon to shred the progressive agenda and enrich their wealthy donors. 
Last week, progressive lawmakers agreed to move ahead on passing the Senate's bipartisan infrastructure legislation before voting on the party's Build Back Better bill, in exchange for a promise that corporate Democrat holdouts would support the latter if the CBO said the bill is fully funded and won't raise the deficit. The controversial bargain came despite warnings that CBO analyses are rigged against progressive priorities. Those warnings appear to have come true. The CBO just said that when calculating the net cost of the BBB, it will not include its own projections of massive savings that would be generated by strengthening tax enforcement to collect hundreds of billions of dollars of levies that go unpaid by the wealthiest sliver of the population. Less than two months ago, the CBO estimated that a BBB provision to increase funding for the IRS by $80 billion over the next decade would raise about $200 billion in revenue over that same time period. That followed an earlier CBO report, which found that increasing the IRS budget by just $20 billion over the next decade would increase revenue by about $61 billion. Yet the same CBO now says it will not include these estimates when calculating the budgetary impacts of BBB, except in a footnote, according to Bloomberg News. The office is basing that decision on its budgetary scorekeeping guidelines, which include an obscure provision stipulating that, quote, estimates for appropriation bills include only the budgetary effects of the amounts that would specifically be provided Indirect effects that could result when an agency spends the discretionary funds are excluded. Increasing funding for IRS enforcement is the largest source of revenue for BBB. Excluding that revenue from the CBO score makes it far more likely that the office will conclude that the reconciliation bill will add to the budget deficit, giving corporate Democrats the ammunition they need to justify voting down President Joe Biden's promised agenda. The CBO's move comes less than three years after the office issued a report insisting that the budget effects of climate change, quote, will probably be small over the next 30 years and larger but still modest in the following few decades. That declaration combined with the CBO guidelines against considering indirect budgetary impacts suggests that separate cost savings from the BBB programs to combat climate change will also go uncounted by the CBO. Meanwhile, Democrats are using an accounting gimmick to pretend that a massive tax cut for the wealthy, a temporary repeal of the $10,000 cap on state and local t tax deductions, SALT, will not cost anything. Corporate Democrats have long pretended that eliminating the so-called SALT cap would help middle-class families. However, more than 56% of the benefits of repealing the SALT cap would flow to the top 1% of earners, and 96% of the repeal will flow to the top 20% of earners, with only 4% of the benefits going to the bottom 80%. A full repeal of the SALT cap would cost $475 billion over those first five years, while limiting SALT deductions to 72500 as House Democrats have proposed, would cost $222 billion over five years. But that's not how the CBO's budget wonks will score it. This is where the budget gimmick comes into play. By raising the SALT cap for five years and reinstating the $10,000 cap for the following five years, Democrats are expecting the CBO to say that over the decade, the SALT policy won't actually cost anything which is total nonsense. Representative Josh Gothheimer, who has led efforts to include a repeal of the SALT cap in BBB, is also one of five corporate Democrats who have said they will not vote for the legislation until the CBO conducts an analysis of whether the bill will increase the federal deficit. Earlier this year, Gothheimer proposed using the revenue from increasing the IRS budget to fund his SALT cap repeal. Quote, there is a cost for infrastructure investments and in eliminating the SALT cap, but there is a solution readily available, he wrote in a letter to Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. 
but now Gothheimer is demanding to see the CBO score of the BBB before he votes for it, despite the fact that the score will omit a revenue measure that he endorsed in the past. While the CBO is technically a nonpartisan office, it is directed by Republican Philip Swagel, who has held affiliations with the right-wing American Enterprise Institute and Milken Institute. The House Speaker and Senate President pro tempore appoint the director, and either branch of Congress can pass a resolution to remove the director at any time. And here's a further piece on BBB and the CBO. This one is written by Kenny Stancil, published at commondreams.org. The Build Back Better Act includes increased funding for Internal Revenue Service enforcement, which the Biden administration has taken into account when saying that the legislation will raise enough money to fully offset spending. But the Congressional Budget Office is expected to omit the projected boost in tax collection from its forthcoming estimate of the fiscal impact of the 10-year $1.75 trillion social infrastructure and climate package. The exclusion could be significant because the more transformative part of President Joe Biden's legislative agenda has been put in jeopardy by five right-wing House Democrats who last week made their support for the Build Back Better Act contingent on receiving fiscal information from the CBO that matches existing estimates provided by the White House. Bloomberg reported Tuesday night, quote, the Biden administration estimates a better-funded IRS could bring in $400 billion over a decade through more aggressive audits of corporations and the wealthy. But under budget rules set by Congress and the executive branch, the government's nonpartisan analysis can't officially count money that will be spent as also increasing revenue when estimating the cost of legislation. Andrew Grossman, the chief tax counsel for the Democratic majority on the House Ways and Means Committee, suggested Tuesday that the Congressional Budget Office will instead limit its analysis of the IRS plan to a footnote in its official report. That's because revenue expected from that increased funding would not be, quote, scorable under the rules guiding official government estimates, he said. Even then, Grossman said, its estimate will likely be well below the White House's projection. While analyses by the White House, the Treasury Department, and the Joint Committee on Taxation have all shown that BBB is fully, quote, paid for and may even reduce deficits, the CBO is likely to come to a different conclusion because it won't consider spending that raises revenue in its score. The only reason any of this matters is because last week, corporate Democratic representatives Ed Case, Josh Gothheimer, Stephanie Murphy, Kathleen Rice, and Kurt Schrader betrayed a long-standing agreement to pass the Bipartisan Physical Infrastructure Bill, BIF, and the more ambitious Social Infrastructure and Climate Package simultaneously, insisting at the last minute that they would not vote for BBB until they received fiscal information from the CBO that is consistent with existing estimates. Given the razor-thin margins in Congress, Democrats can afford only three defections in the House and none in the Senate to pass BBB through the filibuster-proof budget reconciliation process. Ironically, the CBO estimated earlier this year that the $550 billion BIF adds $256 billion to the deficit, a fact that Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez drew attention to last Friday. Welcome to Who's a Deficit Hawk Anyway, where the debt concerns are made up and the CBO scores don't matter. BIF supporters' lack of concern about such a finding, which was also not lost on Senate Budget Committee Chair Bernie Sanders, prompted critics to suggest that the request for additional fiscal information from the CBO by several right-wing House Democrats was nothing more than a thinly-veiled attempt to tank the more ambitious portion of Biden's agenda. Rather than ignoring the demand for additional fiscal information or postponing the votes that had been scheduled for both BBB and BIF in order to keep the two pieces of legislation linked, as the Congressional Progressive Caucus suggested on Friday afternoon, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi acquiesced to the conservative obstructionists 
holding a floor vote on BIF and shelving the planned vote on BBB in favor of a procedural rule for consideration to set up a future vote on the reconciliation bill. At the behest of Biden, Congressional Progressive Caucus Chair Representative Pramila Jayapal and Gothheimer worked out an agreement in which Jayapal would wrangle enough support from CPC members to pass BIF on Friday night, and the five right-wing holdouts would vote for BBB, quote, as expeditiously as we receive fiscal information from the Congressional Budget Office, but in no event later than the week of November 15, consistent with the top lines for revenues and investments projected by the White House. And the Congressional Budget Office, I don't know if it's in this piece later, has stated they won't have their full score of the legislation by the week of November 15. The fossil fuel-friendly bipartisan infrastructure bill is awaiting Biden's signature after having been passed by the Senate in August and by the House on Friday night, when 13 Republicans joined most Democrats in supporting the measure. Just six progressives, Ocasio-Cortez plus Representatives Jamal Bowman, Cory Bush, Ilhan Omar, Ayanna Presley, and Rashida Tlaib voted against BIF in an attempt to prevent the two parts of Biden's economic agenda from being decoupled, which they warned would take away the leverage necessary to advance social welfare and clean energy investments through the House, as well as the evenly split Senate. Now it remains to be seen whether the green public spending contained within BBB will see the light of day. In response to Tuesday night reporting from CNN warning that a full CBO analysis is unlikely to be ready by November 15, Jayapal issued a reminder that Gothheimer et al.'s demand was for additional fiscal information, not a full score from the CBO. However, with the CBO's cost, cost estimate expected to deviate considerably from the Biden administration's previous figures due to the CBO's exclusion of key information, the fate of BBB already hanging by a thread is still uncertain. Last week, Adam Gentleson, a former congressional staffer and current executive director of the Battleborn Collective, a progressive communications firm, warned that, quote, a statement of support for BBB that is contingent on the CBO score could be more of an escape hatch than a commitment to vote for BBB comparing it to a heads-I-win, tails-you-lose scenario. If the conservative Democrats, quote, are really committed, why build in a CBO contingency, he asked, adding that those lawmakers raised no concerns when the CBO said BIF would add more than $250 billion to the deficit. Others, including Warren Gunnell's Majority Staff Director for Sanders, pointed out that the CBO results are notoriously arbitrary and unreliable. Quote, never forget, the CBO director, who is a Republican, estimated that a $15 an hour minimum wage would increase the on-budget deficit by nearly $77 billion, while other major economists and academics told us that a $15 minimum wage would substantially reduce the deficit. Not good. In a recent Groundwork Collaborative report, political economist Mark Paul of the New College of Florida and Adam Hirsch of the Economic Policy Institute, Institute argued, quote, past policy choices have been guided by the Congressional Budget Office's mistaken projections that consistently underestimated potential output and overestimated future interest rates. These mistaken projections exaggerated budgetary costs and led policymakers to hit the brakes on spending far too early in past recoveries entrenching long-standing racial and gender inequities, and deterring investments that would raise efficiency and living standards over the long term. Built into the CBO model are deeply problematic and racialized assumptions about how low the unemployment rate can go without sparking inflation, known as the natural rate. CBO defines a natural rate for black workers that is more than double the rate of white workers and a natural rate for Latinos more than one-third higher. Going too small on spending in past recoveries did more than make the economy more unequal. 
It created a self-reinforcing cycle of economic underperformance that permanently reduced America's potential for growth and prosperity. The statement from Gothheimer et al. says that, quote, In the event the fiscal information received from the Congressional Budget Office is inconsistent with the White House preliminary budgetary estimate of the Build Back Better Act document, we remain committed to working to resolve any discrepancies in order to pass the Build Back Better legislation. Right-wing Democrats have already successfully gutted the reconciliation package, slashing the top-line spending level from $3.5 trillion to $1.75 trillion over a decade. Further attempts to reduce the size of the bill could lead to more pieces dropping out, fueling further wrangling between the Democrats over what should stay in, Bloomberg noted. A provision to allow Medicare to cap the way it pays for prescription drugs could bring hundreds of billions in additional offsets to help bridge the gap between the White House's revenue estimate and that of the CBO, Bloomberg added. But Democrats have yet to finalize the policy amid disagreements between influential members of the House and Senate, including Rice and Schrader, who are among the party's lawmakers bankrolled by Big Pharma. So, here we are, Gothheimer et al., have set themselves up with a very convenient escape hatch to tank the Build Back Better legislation or further dramatically cut the Build Back Better legislation. Uh, because one of, one of Gothheimer's pet projects, as the story mentioned, the prior story by the Daily Poster mentioned, is restoring the full deductibility of the SALT taxes that trump's tax legislation the one very few good things that donald trump's uh tax legislation which gave two two trillion dollars away to the richest folks in in the uh country it did cap salt tax deductions at ten thousand dollars which left virtually all the middle class, depending on where you draw the middle class line, virtually all the middle class maintaining that deduction, though with with the other portions of that tax bill increasing, the, the basic deduction kind of probably eliminated the need or the ability for most of them to use that because their tax burden didn't rise to that level. And increased taxes on the rich folks when it came to what they were allowed to deduct on their tax bills. Of course, Trump's tax legislation gave trillions and trillions of dollars away to the rich in, in many, many other harmful ways. Um, Gothheimer is all about restoring, repealing the salt tax uh, deduction cap. And that is in Build Back Better. There have been a couple stories I've seen recently that said, hey, there's a big, huge giveaway, uh, tax giveaway to the rich in Build Back Better. And this is what they're talking about. Um, the Daily Poster has done some really, really good reporting on that and on Gothheimer overall. Gothheimer, as I mentioned before, is my representative. He's not really my representative. I never voted for him and never will. He holds some uh, very, very strong views that are antithetical to some of my views. He's a very, very conservative Democrat. He served as a speechwriter, I believe, for Clinton and was in on the was worked for Microsoft as well before becoming a representative. His district is in northern New Jersey, northern and northwestern New Jersey, which is a, his district is uh, New Jersey 5. It's very diverse. It is relatively conservative. The previous representative for New Jersey 5 was an asshole. I don't like to call people assholes. And maybe I do it a bit too much and a bit too easily. The positions and the beliefs of 
Mr. Garrett, I believe his name was Scott Garrett, who was in this seat before Gothheimer won, are pretty much appalling, especially when it comes to gay and lesbian rights. Uh, Garrett was one of the worst representatives from anywhere on the subject of gay and lesbian rights. And, and I'm sure a lot of other harmful opinions from him as well. So is Gothheimer better than his predecessor? Yes. Is Gothheimer good? No. Big, fat, absolute no. Um, and Gothheimer was reelected a year ago now in 2020. Um, but had a good, had a relatively strong progressive challenger. Her name is Dr. Arati Krybik. Not sure I'm pronouncing her last name correctly. Um, you can find out more about her because I very, very much hope that she or someone like her challenges Gothheimer in the 2022 primary for New Jersey five and defeats him. And this is the one thing that I think is beneficial of this fight, especially if Gothheimer ends up tanking or further diluting build back better. I think that it has put him on a national stage in a way that he was not before. He's always wanted to be. He has, he, he started a brand new caucus, brand new coalition in the house. Um, the centrist no it's not called the centrist coalition the quote-unquote problem solvers caucus in which he partners with republicans to try to find quote-unquote middle ground um and puts forward very conservative policy to in in order to maintain that uh those connections and those um agreements with the, the, the Republican side. So Arati, Dr. Arati Krybik, uh, ran against Gottheimer in 2020 and did quite well, not well enough to be able to, uh, win the nomination. You can find more about Arati Krybik, um, at, Arati Krybik, and that is about K-R-E-I-B-I-C-H dot com. Here's a little bit from that site. Dr. Arati Krybik is an activist, community organizer, scientist, and former candidate for Congress. She immigrated to the U.S. when she was 11 years old with her parents and two younger brothers because they believed in the promise of America. Arati earned her Ph.D. in neuroscience from the University of Pennsylvania in 2005. Her research focused on the science of opioid addiction, relapse, and stress. Arati lives with her husband Thomas and their two children Neil and Jay in Glen Rock. She and her family love hiking, reading, and spending time with their dog Bailey. Arati successfully ran for Glen Rock Borough Council in 2017, becoming the first South Asian person elected to the council. In office, she made combating climate change a priority by leading Glen Rock to town-wide clean energy consumption and a plastic bag ban. In 2020, Arati stepped up again and ran for Congress. Her campaign mobilized over 1,100 volunteers and was endorsed by Representative Ayanna Presley and Senator Bernie Sanders and attracted national media attention. Arati earned 34% of the vote, significantly more than any Democratic primary challenge to an incumbent New Jersey representative in at least the last decade. So I don't know what uh, Arati's plans for the future are. As I said, I hope she or someone like her challenges uh, Josh Gottheimer in the Democratic primary for New Jersey 5 because Gottheimer is terrible and has to go. Arati's uh, Twitter is still live, though not active currently, at Arati4, the number four, Congress. Uh, she may have a personal Twitter as well elsewhere. 
but her her Twitter for her campaign is still up. There is one single tweet remaining there, which is a video of her thanking all of her volunteers from the last election. So hopefully we can unseat Gothheimer and in all of this uh, spotlight on Gothheimer in relation to his very conservative positions on Build Back Better and hopefully people will see similar about his conservative positions on other legislation that will get him enough notoriety for enough people in New Jersey five in the Democrats to look for another option, a better option. And finally, here's a piece written by Ajamu Baraka, also a former candidate, the vice presidential candidate for the green party ran with Jill Stein in the last presidential election. Um, He's written a piece here for the Black Agenda Report at blackagendareport.com, where he is an editor and columnist. The idea that Joe Biden is the, quote, most progressive president since FDR is a propaganda device meant to quiet the Democratic Party left and force them to stand down. The capitalist system attempts to divert attention away from its obvious failings in every way that it can. From mindless entertainment to the contrived drama of January 6th and missing person stories to their most valuable diversion, Donald Trump. That is why the collapse of the latest diversional politics reflected in the Build Back Better, BBB, has not generated the attention that it deserved, and when it did garner attention, it was framed as some grand battle of personalities. However, the real story of the Democrats' inability to fashion an agreement on the BBB social infrastructure bill is not related to the supposed disagreements between the personalities of Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema and the individuals who make up the progressives. No, the focus and real story is related to the short-sightedness, greed, and arrogance of the capitalist oligarchy that is unwilling to make any sacrifices to preserve their system and, consequently, making it increasingly difficult for their political servants in Congress to serve their interests without serious political consequences. As I previously wrote, Biden's mission was to stabilize the neoliberal order by giving it a more humane face through subterfuge and slick marketing. A ruse of change was necessary because the rulers were quite clear that they were not going to swallow substantial change in the systematic plunder that characterizes the current neoliberal stage of capitalism, although they understood that the crisis for workers and the poor will continue and become even more acute. That potentially explosive social and political situation was the basis for the tentative agreement among the rulers that some degree of ameliorative social spending would be allowed. I am sure they got some degree of satisfaction when they cleverly thought that, as their messaging strategy, they could spin the plan as some great Rooseveltian departure from neoliberalism. Captured rhetorically in the Build Back Better legislation, The legislation incorporates a number of policies from the Green Party and Sanders campaign, with a plan to dangle them before the public to demonstrate that the Democrats were concerned with the plight of workers and the so-called middle class. Policies like free community college tuition, expanded Medicare, paid family and sick leave, new funding for housing and pre-K, and child care, subsidies for health care and expanded Medicaid, and millions for climate change policies. However, initially, at a price tag of over $6 trillion, was understood that this was not serious. Democratic Party operatives understood that a reconciliation bill passed only by Democrats would have to be reduced significantly. And it was. The $6 trillion was reduced to $3.5 trillion. But this is where it also gets messy. When the progressives did not initially play the role assigned to them, which was to give rhetorical support to the Biden reform agenda, but then defer to the more important infrastructure legislation passed by the Senate, it forced the competing capitalist interests out into the open and undermined what had been a general consensus among them to support some degree of social spending.
An army of lobbyists were unleashed in Washington from the energy companies concerned with the bill's climate proposals. Big Pharma, concerned about giving the government the power to negotiate drug prices, to healthcare industry and insurance companies and individual capitalists concerned with maintaining the Trump tax cuts of 2017. The result? Biden called the progressives to the White House and announced that the new top numbers would have to be between $1.7 and $1.9 trillion. Why? The reason for this number was never revealed. It certainly did not reflect the result of any new agreement between the progressives and neoliberal forces. It was probably a number that Biden, along with Manchin and Cinema, had agreed to in order to moderate the more costly aspects of the bill and to ensure that there would be no significant increase in taxes for the wealthy. Regardless of where it came from, it was a dictum to the progressives to cave. In fact, it became clear that even that number was not secure because Manchin and Cinema continued to hold out for no more spending above $1.5 trillion. And what was the response from the, quote, progressives? Representative Pramila Jayapal, chair of Progressive Caucus, emerged from the meeting at the White House and acknowledged that cuts were coming, but stressed that many of the progressives' policy priorities in health care, education, and social spending remained intact. She also had some strange praise for Biden as, quote, the inspirer, he is the closer, he is the convincer, the mediator-in-chief. He really is doing a phenomenal job. Unfortunately for everyone who thought the progressives were prepared to struggle for their legislation, the signal that they were open to Biden's number translated into lost leverage with power dramatically shifting from the progressives back to the neoliberal party bosses, who of course included Biden, even though Manchin and Cinema were his stand-ins. Reports then started to circulate that the proposal for two free years of community college was going to be eliminated. Paid family leave would be cut from 12 weeks to as low as four weeks, and child tax credits would be extended by only one year. Inclusion of dental care under Medicare to be scaled back to an $800 voucher, and vision and hearing eliminated. Medicare negotiations with Big Pharma to cut prescription drug prices while still on the table looks pretty doubtful in light of the enormous pressure being exerted by the pharmaceutical companies. It looks like the funding for elderly home care and public housing will be slashed and any substantial increase in taxes on the wealthy is off the table. Even at $3.5 trillion, the capitalist oligarchy understood that the ameliorative measures in the bill were not meant to address the deepening economic crisis facing workers. Yet, there were elements in the bill that would have represented policies that still would have provided some material advantages to workers, particularly to black women workers, who now make up the majority of the black labor force. But the Democratic Party, along with its array of allied social forces, labor unions, feminist groups, and NGOs, were not prepared to fight for those changes. In fact, these groups were told to stand down. The mild reforms of the BBB legislation were not benevolent gifts from the rulers, but should be seen as individual and collective human rights. A state's legitimacy is based on its ability to address the human rights of the residents and citizens of that nation. Housing, food, the right to health, a clean environment, the means to make a living, education, real social security, which includes security from unemployment, sickness, and social deprivation, and even the right to leisure, are all human rights that the capitalist order is unable to protect and fulfill because it does not even recognize them as human rights. That is why the capitalist system's legitimacy crisis will only be exacerbated by the Democrats when they attempt to sell the stripped-down version of what was already an inadequate bill to address the human rights and needs of the working class and the poor in the U.S. Politically, regarding 2022, it means that any idea that the Democrats could deliver reforms which could win back the millions of white working-class voters who voted for Obama twice has been undermined by the greed, short-sightedness, and sectorial conflicts of interest within the ruling capitalist class. 
What the BBB debacle has created is another opportunity to demonstrate that reforms of the system are not possible and that the only two paths that exist are either more blatant fascism or socialist transformation and decolonization. That choice continues to reside with the people, whether they know it or not. And of course, the media constantly, incessantly tries to convince the people that they don't have that power and shows examples of the people not having that power. Ultimately, we do the power of those systems that oppress us, education, media, economic, are very impressive and very difficult to overcome. But I kind of imagine it like Utah Phillips imagines an airplane's capability to fly. At least so he expressed in one of his stories. And I'm sure Utah Phillips was uh, fully understood the, the physics of flight. But the story makes a salient point. Utah Phillips said, I don't like to fly. Airplanes are heavier than air. They can't fly. If one person looked up from their in-flight magazine and said, this thing's heavier than air. It can't fly. It would drop like a brick. The reason it does fly is a collective act of faith. And that's the reason why the capitalist system, as it currently exists, continues to, quote-unquote, fly. Collective act of faith. It's failing. It's failing all around us. It's failing every day. But we have been convinced and have convinced ourselves that it works, that it's flying, that it's doing its job, that it's uh, working as intended. It certainly is working as intended, but it's failing so many people. And when you look up, when you look away from your screen, or when you look at the right information on your screen, the information that, that contradicts the common narrative, the educational, the corporate media narrative, that everything's great, the Dow's going up, people are successful. There's so many jobs out there that, that they can't be filled. Everyone can get a job. Hey, everyone can get two. Once it clicks for you, damn, this system's heavier than air. It can't fly. Then, then you can start to learn. And when you start to learn, then you can start to get together, join with others, and start to build a new system that will fly. And that will wrap up this episode of you can't be neutral remember you can follow you can't be neutral on twitter at ycb neutral you can find all the back episodes of you can't be neutral at you can't be neutral.com you can also listen to this podcast and all my other podcasts playing 24 7 at movingtrainradio.com now a moment of zin thanks for listening in political discourse, every term has two meanings. You've got to start by recognizing that. So democracy has an official meaning, which is something like, you know, the ability of the public to take part in running their own affairs or something. But it also has a technical meaning, the one that's actually used. Uh, something is a democracy if it's run by the business classes. If, if business runs it, especially business elements that are supportive of U.S. interests, then it's a democracy. If not, it's not a democracy. It doesn't matter. Nothing else matters virtually. Uh, you'll check, you'll notice that this criterion works quite perfectly for identifying democracies. Uh, same is true of the term peace process. It has a dictionary meaning. In the dictionary meaning, a peace process is some kind of process that's trying to lead towards peace. 
but it also has a technical meaning. Uh, the technical meaning, in its technical meaning, it refers to whatever the United States happens to be advocating at a particular moment. Uh, uh, whatever diplomatic initiatives the United States is advocating, that's the peace process. Uh, notice it follows that it's a logical impossibility for the United States to be opposed to the peace process. That's a nice consequence. Uh, you, to prove that the United States is for peace, you don't have to do any laborious inquiry into the annoying facts, because it's true by definition. Since the peace process is whatever the United States is up to, the United States is always supporting peace. And the US enemies are always opposed to peace uh, because they're not supporting what the US is up to. And by definition, that means uh, 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 they're opposed to peace. Uh, you'll never find in the US media, or for that matter, in US scholarship, for the most part, any such phrase as the United States is opposing the peace process, or the United States is trying to block the peace process. You can't find such statements because they'd be logical contradictions. Actually, I made this statement in a talk in Seattle a couple of months ago, and there is a media analysis group in the graduate school there, and a couple of weeks later I got a letter from somebody saying he was kind of intrigued, so he did a database study of the New York Times over 10 years, and he found, I don't know, like 900 references to peace process and checked them all out, and in fact there's not one case where the United States was opposed to the peace process. It's pretty remarkable because that was a period when the United States was trying to undermine the, uh, d diplomatic negotiations and settlement in Central America and in the Middle East and so on. Notice that's pretty remarkable. Even the most sublime state, you'd expect that it wouldn't always be in favor of the police, peace process, maybe just by error or misunderstanding. But in the case of the United States, it's I, I suspect it's 100%. You might check and see if you can find any exception. And the reason is it's just true by definition since the peace process is whatever we do. Uh, now, there are two major examples of peace processes in process now. One of them's in the Middle East and one's in Central America. There's no time to go through the details, but if you look, you'll notice that in the Middle East, the United States has been trying to block a diplomatic settlement for the of the Arab-Israeli conflict for the past 20 years, and it's still trying to block it. And in this, it's virtually isolated in world opinion. That's exactly what's going on now. Uh, if you like, I'll give you some details. I have a detailed discussion of it in the current issue of Z Magazine, if you're interested. Uh, but I think it's quite clear. Nevertheless, the discussion is the United States is trying to advance the peace process. Uh, there's another peace process going on in Central America, which is no less interesting. Uh, I'll read you from the front page of the New York Times today. Uh, the lead story in the New York Times today, which I picked up on the airplane, says U.S. Envoy urges Hondurans to let the Contras stay. Okay, let them stay in Honduras. They're trying to kick them out. And then comes a long story, and you turn to the second page, the continuation page, and it says, on its face, the administration proposal to keep the Contras in place would seem to be inconsistent with the spirit of the regional peace agreement, which calls for their relocation. But administration officials say there's no inconsistency. Well, that's about as close as you can come. You know, on its face, it seems to be inconsistent with the spirit of the peace agreement. Well, the peace agreement is quite explicit. Uh, the 1987 peace agreement, which the United States has succeeded in undermining and destroying, says explicitly uh, that the one indispensable element in obtaining peace in the region is the end of any form of support, logistical, military, propagandistic, etc., for irregular forces like the Contras. Now, it's not, it doesn't seem to be inconsistent in, with the spirit, but it's flatly inconsistent with the words uh, to keep the Contras in place. Uh, well, the same is true of everything else about that. Uh, the, there was a, uh, there's, uh, that was the 1987 peace agreement, which the United States tried to undermine and did undermine with the support of the media, uh, but there are others. There's a, uh, the, right now there's a debate going on on so-called humanitarian aid to the Contras. Well, uh, the term humanitarian aid has a meaning. Uh, in fact, the World Court in its decision defines humanitarian aid. Uh, it, you look up paragraph 243 of the World Court decision, and it defines humanitarian aid as aid given for the hallowed purposes of the Red Cross, namely to relieve human suffering. Uh, and crucially, it says, aid that is given without discrimination to civilians on all sides of any conflict. Only under such conditions does anything qualify as humanitarian aid. Well, that means all the stuff given is called humanitarian aid has nothing to do with humanitarian aid. It's military aid. 
but you'll never find this discussed in the media. I doubt if you can find one reference to this in the media. So now we're talking about humanitarian aid that's going to be voted, the Bush administration hopes, to keep the Contras in place in violation of the 1987 agreement. Well, there was also a Central American President's Agreement just last month, and that said something too. It said the Contras have to be relocated away from Honduras. So this is flatly inconsistent with that, not the spirit, but the wording. Uh, furthermore, uh, there was a ceasefire agreement between Nicaragua and the Contras last March over the deep objections of the United States last March 23rd. And that ceasefire agreement has some very specific terms in it. It says that aid can continue to go to the Contras in uh, ceasefire zones, all of which are in Nicaragua, when provided by a neutral agency. That's what the wording of the agreement says. Congress passed legislation right after that sent to send what they call humanitarian aid to the Contras. But if you look at the legislation, it says specifically that it must be in accord with the ceasefire agreement and it must be in accord with the Central American Peace Agreement. Well, that means that the only aid that Congress could legally send to the, to the Contras in accordance with its own legislation is aid given by a neutral agency, like the Red Cross, uh, to Contras in ceasefire zones inside Nicaragua. Uh, that's not just my interpretation. The ceasefire agreement also specified an international official in charge of monitoring the agreement. It's the Secretary General of the Organization of American States. He wrote a letter to, President, to Secretary of State George Shultz stating that the aid that the United States was sending was inconsistent with the ceasefire agreement, and he was, wanted to call the attention of the Secretary of State to this serious violation of the ceasefire agreement and the congressional legislation. That was never reported. Uh, Congress proceeded to send the aid. Uh, the neutral agency that they selected was USAID, State Department subsidiary. That's the, US, that's the neutral agency. And they're sending it illegally to Honduras. In fact, the aid that they're sending is not only incon flatly inconsistent with the Central American Peace Agreement, it's even inconsistent with Congress's own legislation. That's pretty tricky. You'll never find one word of discussion about this. This is against the background of years of the United States trying to undermine every effort at political settlement of, that, of those conflicts, whether they were uh, through the Contadora group of Latin American democracies or the United Nations or the Security Council where the United States vetoed resolutions calling on all states to support international law and so on. And it continues. But nevertheless, according to the media, uh, the press, the United States government is supporting the peace process. Well, I'm suggesting that wherever you look, if you look closely, you'll find exactly the same thing. Uh, you'll find quite a remarkable degree of civility and subordination to established power uh, particularly remarkable because there's no force behind the, there's no authority that can impose force. This is willing subservience, not compelled subservience, uh, and the kind that in fact flows, I think, just from the, the logic of the institutions for the reasons that I mentioned. Well, let me return finally to a prediction of the propaganda model that I mentioned already, namely that however well confirmed it is, uh, it cannot be part of the discussion. It's going to, got to remain outside the spectrum of uh, debate in respectable circles, uh, maybe with some very marginal exceptions. Uh, the reasons are the ones I mentioned. They're pretty obvious. That conclusion, again, is quite well established empirically. And I think we may assume with fair degree of confidence that that will continue to be the case.